Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Joyce Yee and Paul Rogers. Joyce is Professor of Design and Social Innovation at Northumbria School of Design in the UK. She's passionate about designing for social good and advocates for culturally diverse and locally relevant practices that challenge the dominant industrialized and Western-centric models of design. Paul Rogers is Professor of Design at the University of Strathclyde Department of Design, Manufacturing, Engineering, Management. I really hope I said the name of the university correctly. <laughs> he currently, his current research interests explore the discipline of design and how disruptive design interventions can enact positive change in health and social care and elsewhere. From 2017 to 2021, he held the post of the Arts and Humanities Research Council Priority Area Leadership Fellowship in Design, where he initiated a number of projects under the Design Research for Change project that highlighted the positive and wide-ranging social, cultural, environmental, and economic well-being. It's really a pleasure for me to have them on the show. They are the co-editors, the most important part of this conversation, of the Routledge Companion to Design Research. And as I was telling them before we got on the air and started recording that, you know, as I was going through this this volume, this is an, an incredible book of, of just thinking, ideas, guidance, signposts, all of the positive things that you would you would need not only in the areas of design research, but really this should be a model for what textbooks look like. So I want to welcome both Paul and Joyce to the show. Welcome to the deep dive. Thank you. Yep. Likewise. Awesome. Good to see both of these smiling faces in the UK, your afternoon, my morning. So I want to start with you know, I mentioned that this is the, the second edition of the book, and I think that's a great place to start. And, and Joyce, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to go first. Why do you feel there was a need for a second edition of this companion to design research? Thanks, Phil. Thank you for the opportunity to share uh, our experiences. Yeah, so I think the first edition, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, was done in 2012, 2013. So it was quite some time ago and we were given the opportunity. This was, I think, pre-COVID or as we came into COVID to put together a second edition. And we felt very strongly there was definitely many more new voices, many, many new topics or emerging topics that we wanted to really shine a light on and to give focus on. So that was really the aim of it. And to also, I think design research has come on quite a, a lot in the last 10 years. It's a young discipline. And I think, you know, and Paul can elaborate more on that. It's 50, 60 years old in terms of as a discipline, as, a, as an area of study. And we're still developing in a way our positionality and standpoint, but it's just been a, a really important update, I think, for us to, to be involved in. What Joyce has said there, there was probably, I mean, it was almost a decade, I guess, from the first edition to the second edition. I think a decade is a I was going to say a decade's a long time in politics, but a decade is a long time in design research. 
And I think what Joyce and I both advocate and champion, I think, is the a diversity of voices, but also to give over a kind of platform, if you like, to people that are maybe overlooked, underrepresented. And a significant part of that is towards encouraging what we would call early, earlier career researchers. So I think in that interim period, you could, you could also see many shifts. And again, Joyce and I have the privilege of, of meeting many people. And in that decade, in that period in between, we kind of met lots of people that, well, certainly I, I can speak for myself. I, I, I certainly met lots of people that I thought, wow, you know, you're doing some amazing work in many ways different to how it's done in the kind of western world which tends to kind of dominate a little bit and i think that you know we we need to give a platform and shed a light on some of that work and, and a lot of that work was coming from south and latin and central america actually so there's quite a dominant and obvious force that's coming through there which i think is is great to see you know, you, you mentioned that 10 years being a long time in, in the field of design research, you know, and politics, you know, I would argue 10 years is a long time in many things, including my the shape of my knees and back and, and all those things. You start to feel the, the wear and tear on one's body. And I think, you know, to kind of combine a couple of those things that the kind of overall social, political, economic backgrounds and world is very different. 10 years ago to now, did any of those factors kind of come into your thinking about how this second edition would take shape, particularly, um, you know, add another element to that, I would argue academia and universities look and feel very different than they did 10 years ago, whether that's um, exertions from outside forces and and all the like. So, you know, I started with you, Joyce, Paul, I'll give you an opportunity at this one, and then we'll kind of ping pong it back. Did, did that factor into your, your thinking as you were putting this new volume together? Yeah. I mean, again, 10 years for within a kind of academic context is a long time. I have to say, as someone who's, who's kind of probably closer to the end of their academic career than the beginning. Ten years flies by now. It didn't fly by as quickly. It didn't seem to fly by as quickly when I was, you know, in my early twenties. But yeah, I mean within within a kind of academic context, the changes have, have been significant and also the kind of research landscape. So we see that, you know, certainly in the UK the competition for research funding has become, you know, incredibly competitive. The demands of of government on you know particular budgets for things are becoming increasingly competitive between one department and another. So there's a much greater sense of having to articulate the impact and the value of of research. And I think what we see between the first edition and the second edition is a group of authors who are incredibly kind of mindful of that those demands on kind of demonstrating impact in the world. So we see different, you know, there's definitely been again, a kind of lurch towards the kind of social turn in design research. I think there's, we also see greater collaboration across disciplines, across nations, across concepts and methods. And I think that's all, I mean, from my point of view, that's all very healthy, but it's certainly a different world to the one that, you know, when we wrote the first edition, there's no doubt about that. And Joyce, your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think part of the social turn is also acknowledging the where the disciplinary 
or the base of design knowledge came from originally. So it came from industrialized Western approach. In fact, is a in a way Western construct as a discipline, designing and design. And so I think being able to recognize that centralization of knowledge is becoming less and less of a model and we're moving towards more decentering. So decentering of where knowledges are coming from, recognizing what they are, where they come, where what is valid and what isn't. Um, that is also happening in the design field and the design discourse. So in a way, when we put the second volume together, we were very conscious about those movements and the need to also pluralize discourses in design, but also recognizing that both Paul and I work in very privileged situations in you know privileged Western universities, UK base, and that actually a lot of the work that a lot of design discourses are also mainly published in English. And it's also we're missing a huge part of the canon or of knowledges coming in. And of course, we still had to subscribe to that to a certain extent when putting together this volume. But we were very mindful to not just have a different levels of academics uh, experiences in there, but also trying to bring out those voices. And I think that uh, that also echoes the changes in higher education and the concept of what higher education is, is, is kind of the privileging of knowledge, but where does that privilege lie? So I think that's important to, I think, consider when we were thinking about the second volume. And, you know, I, I think it's really interesting, you know, as we're starting to like weave some of these ideas together, because, you know, we mentioned a little bit in that conversation that this notion of assigning a value to something like research. And I think when laymen think of design, right, they're thinking about something that is usually physical, it's tangible in its makeup and in its manifestation. Design research is different from that right? In the sense that there can be physical manifestations, they can be things that are created out in the world, but some of this is also in the in the realm of intangibility. We're talking about how we work, create, think, identify space within one another. So having said all that, how in your opinion is there a way of assigning a value that doesn't fall into those same westernized, industrialized models of, of even thinking what value is in the first place as something that can be commodified, sold, marketed, all, all the rest of, of those things. And Joyce, I'll start with you here. Yeah, I think I guess Paul talked about impact. So the social turn in design research is really about, in a way, illustrating or demonstrating the impact that design research and design has on people, on the environment, on society. But I also think that sometimes that trying to illustrate or evidence impact in a quantifiable economic turn, it's almost asking the wrong question. I know we have to, to respond to that because that, in a way that's our, the framing that most things gets put into. I think that's often very challenging. And I think one of the concerns of the work that I'm doing is actually how is design defined, how is designing defined that it's not really assuming the market economic model. That's what design has emerged from, manufacturing industry, serving industry. And I think that's where also the challenges for design, and, and you see that in a lot of the chapters that where you're trying to improve people's lives, whether or not you are designing products or services or something intangible as in supporting creative capabilities and capacities. I would argue that 
our we need a almost an ontological shift in where what we think of designing because what we've been taught in design education for years have been based on that market model, market logic model. So I think there lies a tension, and I know that design education is moving slowly towards that, but I think research illustrates some of the kind of tensions and, and challenges when it comes to doing this kind of work without shifting our ontological perspective about what designing is. And Paul? I don't know if I disagree with any of that, but maybe I always like to be a bit rebellious. But maybe maybe just to kind of remind everyone that, yeah, I mean, I think design is certainly was a kind of tool of of capitalism you know i think it's heavily it's been heavily involved in that you know i'm I'm kind of old enough to remember those pictures of raymond lowey in the front cover of time magazine and and those kind of graphs where you know showing the 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 contribution of design um on the kind of sales curve it always kind of went up and thankfully i think you know that's now been kind of interrogated and questioned this continual kind of drive for economic growth at the expense of well just about everything else i think value is a very difficult thing to deal with because even within the if i look at my kind of office here you know i'm kind of looking east to the east end of glasgow which is a very different proposition if i was looking west the life expectancy of a, of a man for example you know that way you live 10 years less than that way and the values that people put on things will be different just in that space of, you know, five kilometres, maybe. So I think value is a very difficult thing to deal with in design. I think design, you know, historically has been part of the problem, so to speak. You know, but I, I, I do think it's, thankfully, I, th- I think, you know, many of the voices and the authors and the practitioners and the researchers in, in the book are moving away from, from designs you know, I think we spoke about design being a kind of handmaiden to capital. I think, you know, most people, thankfully, that we know and are in the book are tending to at least kind of react against that and to, and to kind of showcase the other values that design might bring. I've been involved in a lot of work where designers are driven to make social change um, or environmental change or cultural change sometimes at the expense of economic change, but I'd, I wouldn't like us to throw the kind of baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, you know, because economic development can be a good thing. It's not all bad. You know, it can create new jobs. It can create new technologies and new ways of doing things that might be better than the ones that already exist. So, I mean, all I would kind of end on is value is tough. It's tough. It's the thing that we have to wrangle with every five years when we have national kind of assessment exercises on research and we have to try and justify and articulate the value that the research that we've we've done and often that can be very difficult often it takes a long period of time so it's it's a difficult concept to grasp I think and, and something that you know we continue to to kind of try and tackle and, and hopefully the book goes some way to to possibly trying to kind of alter some of those metrics that that we currently use and come up with new ones. And I'm glad that, you know, we're always going to circle back to the book. And as I hear both of you kind of share your reflections on on the thoughts and the provocations that I'm that I'm going for, I, I keep running in the back of my head that so many different thinkers and authors within the book are wrestling with 
some of these same issues that we're discussing right now. And they're doing it from, as you mentioned, different geographies. They're doing it from different backgrounds. They are in different timelines of their career. Both of you cited the importance of of highlighting people newer or, or younger in their research career, right? Giving oxygen to new voices. So the book is in in the best way, you know, 500 odd pages of of wrestling around with these ideas, you know, where does capital play a, a role in it? How do we think about larger issues than just the economics when there's more to our human experience than, than that? So I found the book to be very much rooted in our present while also asking really challenging questions about the future. So Joyce, I'd ask you this, like, did you think about that in the curation or and and how did you balance that both need for it to address the current in a way that would drive change while also inviting a different future slash futures plural? Yeah, I think we were very careful of who we invited that allows that balance between obviously showcasing using the work to showcase current ongoing issues that they face in their work, but also are in themselves open enough to to raise continuous questions and critical and reflective questions. And and just to say that the tome, although it's 500 pages long and it has, I don't know, 39 chapters or 38 chapters, is not definitive. This is just a, a snapshot of that time. And there's some practicalities involved. Some people we invited couldn't contribute because they were too busy. And so it is a platform, but it's of many other platforms that are doing similar things. But I think for us, it was, I think first and foremost, it's kind of us admiring the work that they're doing, recognizing the impact that they're doing and, and how different it is or, or it's how interesting, but also that all of them share uh, an openness in questioning, continually to question what they're doing and not take it as that's it or as a canon. And I think of course, that's a that's what a good researcher do, but that doesn't always mean that they they subscribe to that. So, I think that's how we balance it. And of course, we did have a sense of themes and thematic themes in the sections, and also subject areas that we wanted to offer a platform to and to to showcase. So that was some pragmatics in the selection criteria. And Paul, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, design is a bit of a kind of weird beast in the it's kind of dealing with or it you know a large proportion of what it does is it deals with stuff that doesn't exist it's always proposing things that you know visions of the future and and products that you know we might like to see sometime in the future but they don't exist at the moment so there's always this looking forward and imagining what might become you know that's kind of part and parcel of what a designer or a design researcher does whilst at the same time kind of grappling with you know current trends and current demands and current issues and and hopefully also having one look to the past for me i think a lot of design researchers kind of forget about the past i think there's a tendency amongst certainly my kind of student body that i don't think they they look to the past as much as they should I don't know whether that's a, a reaction to the very fast way of life that we have at the moment, where there's an immediacy of 
data and information, all at the, you know, they can all find everything on this phone. You know, the, the phone now becomes the, the kind of tool of, of every, you know, I've, I've now got people that will show me their work on the phone. They don't even bother to print it off. They, you know, we're talking about this tiny screen and they'll blow up and stuff. And I think there is a little bit of a, that kind of looking to the past to try and influence or, or inspire what we do in the future is I think becoming less and less and I, and I think that's a, that's something that we have to be kind of careful of I think we should be guarded about that that you know there's many things many lessons that we can learn from the past but also many things from the past that should remain in the future and, and not be touched so I guess I get a greater acknowledgement of things and jo Joyce said earlier on design research is a really young discipline I mean, it's for many people, it kind of began in the 1960s. You know, it's 60 years that we don't have a long tail, really, historically. But I think we need to be guarded that we, we are not giving up a lot of that, you know, the early kind of pioneers of design and design research, who I think, you know, did a lot of good for design research and that we should be mindful to, to kind of protect and at, and at the very least acknowledge as we move forward. I want to stick with that point a little bit more regarding the past, because I've in my work, I've written about the past in, in my mind is an opportunity to collaborate with our ancestors. Right. We build on things that we've seen. And, you know, it's a poetic turn of phrase. So I, I use it in talks and stuff like that. But it really is how I feel that when you when you have an opportunity to, you know, open up an old book or something or, or journal, that you're getting a, a chance to kind of peek into the thought process of, of what came before you. I, and, and I understand that at, at some times in our framework, you know, meaning our kind of social construct, that can be problematic, right? Like some of the, some, I'm not, and I'm not talking about anybody in particular in design research, but in any, any field, you can, you can go back and, and look at someone who's created work that is relevant and then when you dig into their life or the times in which they existed, you're like, wow, that person was a real asshole, right? Like, like you know, like they were like a really terrible human being or their work or their frame of thought was built on ideas that are corrosive, right? Like if you, you know, if you go back a, a, a hundred years, less really in, some, in many places, life was so sweet for folks, right? Like people of color, women, and depending on where you live right now, life ain't that sweet, right? So, you know, sometimes that look back is problematic. Like there's a question I asked, like, do you want to, and I do this for a section of the show, do you want to go forward in time and see generations in front of you or do you want to go back? And, and jokingly to myself, I'm like, I wouldn't want to go to 1850, right? Like that would suck for me. 1850 America would be a terrible place. Like, why would I want to see that? Right? Would like, hang out with Frederick Douglass, right? Like, that shit would be terrible. So in, in a joking way, talking about the past, I'm, I'm curious if what you're seeing and feeling comes from, as we use language like decolonizing and we use, and, you know, which I think are relevant, so I'm not poo-pooing them. But I'm saying, like, as we look sort of maybe reject is too heavy a word, but push back on the past. We resist it in a way. Does that make sense? Or, or is it just like, they just like phones? 
<laughs> it doesn't have to be as high-minded as I just made it. It could be just a day like phones. <laughs> what, do you, what do you both think about that? And, and Paul, I'll let you go. And then Joyce, I want to hear your thoughts because you're laughing. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that you, your phrase collaborating with ancestors is really nice. That's the first thing. Oh, thank you. It's worked yeah. well in audiences. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really like that. Yeah, I mean, you, you you wouldn't like to go back to 1850. That's that's kind of cool. It's really, sometimes... 1950 either, actually. Well, yeah, but well, <laughs> well it's inter- it's interesting because th- th- there is a period in American history that you know, for me, I would like to go back and just see what it was like because I think, it, in many ways, from a kind of design point of view, it was a bit of a golden era. You know, I think there was some really interesting experiments with materials. There was some really interesting experiments of ways of doing things and, and creating things that I think in many ways was, from a solely a design perspective, was fascinating. And I think the, the same can be said for for architecture and also for art. You know, I'd, I'd kind of like to oscillate between, you know, Picasso's Blue Period and Francis Bacon's studio in West London. I mean, they, they, it must have been amazing in many ways to kind of, you know, if we could go back and, and get a sense of what it was like there. And sometimes we can through through books and, and through films and, and through other media. We can kind of collaborate with those godfathers, if you like, of, of art and design and filmmaking. So I guess my point about the past was... We need to be careful to kind of acknowledge, you know, what's what's happened in the past, for bad or good, and to kind of utilise that in new ways. And I, I just think there is a rush. I just think we have to be guarded that there's not always a rush about, you know, the next new thing in design research. I think we need to be careful that some of our forefathers, if you like, in design research have, you know, been instrumental in, in kind of creating what we have today for bad or good but we should try and understand you know what went on in those days and kind of utilize it for what we're doing currently and also for what we then want to do in the future and and Joyce I'll let you jump in here too yeah I guess the question of what do I want to go back or forwards I think I'd rather go forwards I think but if I were to go back I don't think I would go back to visit all the masters of design as we recognize that in the canon but actually I want to look at things that I, we never considered to be designing or design in interesting ways so that I can better understand. Because again, I think there's a canon of design education, isn't it? Design theories and design masters that we know well from. We know there's lots of books on, but there's also a whole chunk of history and activities and practices that are missing from the canon that I'm probably more interested in. And I think that's partly to do with my background and heritage. So I'm Malaysian, Malaysian Chinese, but I've now lived longer now in the UK than I have in Malaysia. So in a funny way, I'm a diaspora, both either when I was in Malaysia, because I was considered ethnically Chinese, not Malay, which is dominant uh, dominant um, race. But I'm also diaspora when well, I'm in the UK. So I'm, I'm trying to find, I guess, my role, my identity as a designer in that very complicated space. And of course, I've been schooled in design. I've learned all about design. I've all the, read all the books about designing and designers, which I think is important and that we don't forget. But I think what's more interesting is what it isn't in the books. And I think that's where we are at. And that's why I'm, in, I'm really 
excited about that going forward. And I do hope that it sticks and not something that comes around in a cycle like uh, Victor Margolin's, you know, book that comes back into popularity now because we need it, but actually something that sticks and that we do look underneath all the edges that was missed because they weren't given a voice or, you know, given a platform to talk about what they do as designing. It doesn't have to, you know, they don't have to call it design to be designing is what I'm saying, but I'm actually more interested in the edges of those practices that are being hidden. Yeah, and I think what you both shared, you know, as, as I sit here as the person who sort of interrogates other folks and, and has these conversations is, you know, there's an incredible openness and that is also represented in the book that it, it stretches the conventional thinking around design, design research, and really who should we be talking to, right? Like it asks, even without asking a, a pointed question, just the fact that the book was put together in the way that it was opens up an incredible way of thinking, right? And it, you, like you said, it's 39 chapters. But one, they're very digestible, right? So don't like don't be put off by the amount of chapters. But what I what I found as I was going through the book is the references, the notes within the book often sent me down even other pathways, right? And it, and it started to open up all these different apertures. So whether one goes forward, goes back, or does a combination, it feels like we're shifting between these ideas. And so long preamble, but I want to ask you both around, you know, this notion of of canon, right? Like, again, it's one of these words that has, you know, we, we talked about value earlier. It has a value to it, right? It has a heft when you use the word canon and, and think about, you know, who are we assigning to that? Why are we making that assignment? You know, what does it mean? But yet when I look at what you have collected, I feel like this is canon. You know, if I'm using the same academic terminology, I'm like, this is an essential and vital work filled with essential and vital thinkers, right? So adding this to that idea of canon, even as we're trying to push and pull against what canon means, like how do we do that? In, in a way that challenges, but also makes space for work like yours that I would want to see with all those kind of godfathers of design research. So, so Joyce, I'll let you go first and then, and then Paul, you can jump in. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Phil. Yes, I have a love-hate relationship with the, with Canon. I think, I think it's very, very kind of you to say, or at least to frame the book as a Canon, but I'm not sure that it, it doesn't quite capture all the voices. Obviously, it's a snapshot. And I, I do know we have, by presenting it as a volume and the way it's described as a you know companion to design research, it feels like we're presenting it as a canon. But I don't think that's our aim, but it has to come together in, in a way that makes sense. But I think that's the one part that I have agency in, which is being able to invite specific authors to contribute to this book, is that I can expand the range of voices and referencing that comes into into design research. I think that's really important because for too long, it has been very heavily dominated by some key people. And if you actually look at citations and you do a search on certain key terms, it's still heavily dominated by some key individuals. Mostly white male Western authors. Apologies, Paul. You're, I don't see you as that, but, but I think that's also really 
for me personally, something to to try to pluralize and expand on that. But um, I think if you're trying to be critical and it's, it's always going to be difficult when you're trying not to put together what we think a canon but also challenge what a, the idea of a canon is so it's a it's a it's a paradoxical thing that we've created and produced in a way and paul i think the word you used earlier there phil was openness and i think that's something that we've joyce and i have always strived for in in our work and and the way that we you know, we kind of seek new voices and, and give them a platform and, and kind of respond to, you know, what they're writing. You know, we try to be open and kind of highlight that kind of openness, I think, in what we do. I think the, I don't like the word canon either. And I don't, I've got a bit of a weird trait. I actually don't like singularizing words like canon. So there's like one canon and we can pour all the people into this canon. They'll all be predominantly pale, male and stale, maybe. I like to always pluralise words. So I'm happier and a lot more comfortable talking about canons of design research and, and even collections. You know, like this is one collection of design research, but I'm kind of happy and open and confident enough to say that there'll be many collections. I'm not saying that one is above another. And even go back to the word value, you know, there are values. So again, I, I seem to be, I, I tend to pluralize just about everything these days because, you know, I think there is, I think there is a greater recognition that look, there's different ways of doing things. I would point out that not everyone will share Joyce Nye's openness about that. <laughs> you know, I think there are some people that think there is a canon of design experts and this is a list of them. And I just don't go for that at all. I don't buy into that. I think there's, you know, different horses for different courses. People have different strengths, different outlooks, different beliefs, different ways of doing things. And they're all valuable. We just have to try and educate ourselves about what's valuable within them and accept them, really, um, for what they are and, and kind of move forward. So I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm kind of much more happier talking about the plural of, of these things, like collections and groups and godfathers and there's always more than one there's always more than one particularly in the, the world that we inhabit which is you know it's it's not like mathematics or astrophysics there's many answers many of them will be valid yeah you know there's no single answer in in design which is why it makes it so exciting really for me there's no single answer in, in anything but yet there. <laughs> There are those who would profess that there is, right? There's the one way. And um, I, I think kind of posing that, and I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that there are going to be forces, again, plural, organizations, plural, thinkers, plural, that don't share likely the perspective of not just the two of you, but the three of us and many others, right? That would sort of prefer a perspective that is far more in line with a particular doctrine that has a particular agenda. You know, as I'm sitting here in Brooklyn, you know, American university. So I'm only going to use the example of, of what I know, but I know some of this is universal, but with nuance. But here in, in the United States, you know, colleges and universities, really all education, but colleges and universities get a lot of the attention, have been, you know, the cultural battleground of what should be taught by who, why, what does it look like? And again, history guy, this is not new. When I started college in 1990, you know, it's someone like an uh, 
Alan Bloom was saying the same things, right? That the world's coming to an end. We don't respect the Western canon. There's that word again. Um, so American education is falling apart. Fast forward now 30 plus years, people are saying much the same thing. Identity and wokeness and diversity is, is destroying us, right? So there is resistance to these ideas, right? Like there's a perspective that is more open. There is a perspective that is not, and a lot of things in between and in and around. So again, another long preamble, like where are you seeing resistance, right? Like where are you seeing those, those pockets where there isn't a reception of openness, you know, because I think, you know, again, this is kind of a personal opinion. If we don't fully grasp and understand what's assailed against us, it is very difficult to come up with workable solutions to create these others, these other spaces. So I think I started with Joyce last, so I often get confused. So I'm going to go with you, Paul. Sorry if, if Joyce, it's your turn. But Paul, I'm going to go with you about that. Like, where are you finding resistances? And then Joyce, I'll, I'll, you can jump in. Yeah, I guess an immediate answer for me would be there's, there is some resistance amongst, I would say, journal editors where they have a particular agenda and probably a particular limited kind of interpretation, if you like, or database of references and particular authors that they like to see and ways of doing things. So, you know, particular methodologies, particular approaches, particular ways of presenting your research. And I think that can be really, as, as an academic, you know, you, that's part of the game where you write and you submit to these journals and, and it, can be, it can be difficult sometimes getting a rejection, of which I get many, by the way. But I work with um, I work with some really interesting people all over the world and, and one that Joyce, Joyce knows as well because Joyce has worked with him. He has a very blunt response to any reviewers and he says, well, you know, thanks for your, your comments. But if I was to change, if I was to take them all on board and change them to what you want to see, then the paper would become yours and not mine anymore. So I declined to do that. And it used to work quite well uh, um, but it's kind of stopped working now I think they've cottoned on to our kind of methodology so now we don't maybe we don't get published as much in, in particular journals as, as we used to but I think there is some resistance there I think journal editors have a and again this comes back to the kind of openness thing and I think also the kind of attitude and ways of working that I think Joyce and I share that you know we wanted to encourage we don't have a particular method or agenda or doctrine for the authors in the in the book. You know, we didn't give we didn't want to give them a style guide or anything. You know, it was a case of look, you write how you write. It's it's your style. And we're not gonna we don't really want to touch that at all. We'll obviously support you and help you where we can, but we're not specifying a particular, you know, style or, or way of writing or thinking. And I think some journal editors, they do that actually. And I think that's to the detriment of, of design research. I think it's quite sad, really. You know, I guess I could hazard a guess at why they kind of do that, where there's maybe a feeling of kind of insecurity and wanting to protect things. And I, th I think once you start thinking in that way, then, you know, that's, that's the time to give it up, actually. But I think there's some resistance within the kind of publishing kind of world of, of design research. Um, there are probably many others, but you know, certainly that one is, is kind of at the forefront of my, my mind at the moment. 
Yeah, I guess I could comment on it from two perspectives, really. So within the academic side of things, Paul mentioned journal editors. I think the other challenging pushback sometimes is from funders, so from funding agencies. UK, so to give a bit of background, UK research landscape is mostly funded by through government funding, very rarely through philanthropic funding. So obviously it's distributed via different research councils with different subject remit and focus. And I think sometimes as a design researcher going in to lead on projects is often quite challenging because, as Paul mentioned, a lot of the work is around, it's quite futurescaping and there's a lot of, in a way, risk-taking. And what funders usually don't like is risk. They want to know what their money is getting out specific outcomes. And I think sometimes that is very challenging for design research to, to be leading on an area. And again, something that st- struck me as quite unique to design is that we don't have a subject specialism per se. You know, we're not focused on healthcare. We're not focused on social democracy, for example. We, we are basically a, a discipline that is all about process, all about approaches, all about mindsets. And in that, that can be its strength because it can be applied to different topics and subject areas, but also its downfall because oftentimes if we put in an application to funders, they don't quite really get what design is bringing in. Um, I know that's changing, continue to change. And I think the work that Paul's done as you know the design fellowship lead for the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK has done a lot to kind of you know bring change that way of considering design in this say. So I think there's still some pushback about the role that design can play in driving sort of social agenda, um, research agenda. And I think there's also pushback from the discipline, the, sorry, the practice element of design. So although the discussion that we're having now and we're having in the book is driven by research, unfortunately, not a huge amount of the thinking and, and ideas and openness is translated in practice. I think a lot of practitioners, either obviously they are, some of them are aware, but unable to really address some of these structural institutional barriers just because of the work that they're in or the organization. And I think that's there's a big gulf between where design research is heading and where practice is still lagging behind, I think. So I think there's pushbacks in both ways, but for various different reasons. You know, it's interesting that you brought up the point that you did, Joyce. I want to, I want to start to get you guys out on this because I had a question a little bit more fine-tuned exactly to this point. And it, it was partially surfaced from the very first essay in the book, which Renolf Glanville that you, you mentioned in the preamble is intact from the first edition to the second edition, right? So this is almost, again, we're talking about the past, right? This is an archival moment where it's the the one piece that is consistent between editions of the book. And you explain in the preamble the why of it, both because of, of his if passing away, but the embodiment of what the essay is all about has some consistency and some merit to remain intact. And it starts off the volume. And as I was reading this, you know, it really made me think about how he defines the acting versus the outcome. You know, this notion of process versus outcome. So I, I wanted to give you uh, a chance to go out on this notion of, you know, how does your work 
kind of balance through that or think through the acting, the process of creating this and the outcome that we want to have driven, whether it's a, a social thing or, or all those things that go out of the output. Like, how do you balance that? You know, because I was really struck by his wrestling with that notion in, in the opening essay. That's on you, Joyce. The nodding tells me you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, think. <laughs> Thinking, yes. Um, so I guess it's a quite a challenging question, really. I, I think that's why we're going out on it. I know, I know. <laughs> I, it should be Paul that starts off this and gives me some thinking time. But so <laughs> I think for too long, the design discipline and design practice has been too focused on outcomes because it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to show what you've made, what you've designed, what has come out of the work. And we still continually struggle to be able to, A, focus on the process much more, and B, be able to articulate that beyond specific methods or tools that we use. So, for example, design thinking is a really good example. You know, you have the model, it's been very simplified and makes everyone understand exactly what we support, what we go through as designers, or if you're taking design thinking. But it doesn't really work that way, does it? So, um, But it's a very helpful tool to explain the process that you go to. But it doesn't quite capture the nuances and the, the minute consideration that goes on all the time when you are designing, you're in the act of designing. The problem is ultimately we still fall down to here's an outcome, here's a method, here's a template that we're using to illustrate how we're designing in order to get to a product or a service or a new strategy. So I think it's still something that I, I personally still struggle with in describing the work that I do because, you know, I, I don't actually am involved in the designing of specific product services. I work with people. I collaborate. I do a lot of participatory designing. I support others in doing designing. So how do I describe what I do? You know, is it designing? And I think that's always been the perennial tension and struggle with design and design research. We are getting better at it, but there's still, I think, elements of designing that we still don't aren't very good at talking about and acknowledging and putting into our project reports or design project descriptions and our websites. So I don't know if that's an answer. It's a response anyway, Phil. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it is both response and answer, you know, <laughs> because I, I think it typifies how all of this is challenge, right? Because we're dealing with things that are so ethereal but in the most, to me, beautiful ways, because it's the human condition. Paul, I'll let you jump in and then we're going to get to the drop. Yeah. I mean, it was quite a kind of emotional time with Ranulf in, in the first edition. Um, his wife was seriously unwell and Ranulf was, he, he was unwell as well and he was looking after his wife. And, and I think, I can't remember, but I don't, I don't know if his wife had passed away, but he was struggling writing the paper as well as struggling with his ill health and, and, and his wife's passing. And I guess that the process of putting the first edition together was, you know, it's kind of challenging in many ways. And, and not least, we were really keen to include Ranoff because I think he's done a lot for design research and he's a kind of beautiful soul who strived to do the kind of, you know, the best he could do. I think he did a lot for design research that often went unnoticed, actually. So we, I mean, I had endless email conversations with him where he said that I'm giving up, I can't do it. And at the time, I was probably a pain in the arse because I kept saying to him, you got to keep going, you got to keep going. And we, and we kept delaying the book because we, would, we said, look, we're waiting on you. We're not going to go ahead until, until you finish. 
And looking back now, I'm kind of glad we did because we have his, his paper in the first edition and then we reproduced it in its entirety with a foreword from his very good friend, who's also our very good friend, Craig Bremner. And I think that's a kind of lovely thing. It's quite an emotional part of the book. I think it takes pride of place, you know, as the first chapter. I think Craig says something along the lines of, you know, Ranulph should always have the first word because that first word is always going to be the last word because there's nothing else to say. <laughs> and I think, I think Ranulph was that kind of guy. And I think what Ranulph really exemplified in his work was that kind of focus on process, you know, really questioning it. And I know he worked hard with his students to, to interrogate the process that they were working through. And he used some really nice analogies and metaphors when kind of developing, you know, his students' lines of thought and reasoning and argument. You know, that was a very kind of rigorous process that he kind of, you know, supported them with. So I think it's a, it's a really important part of the book. If it kind of exemplifies and raises the kind of issue of process, then that's great because I, I think that's exactly what we wanted it to do. Yeah, that's thank you for sharing all of that, both of you, your your thoughts on and reflections there, because, you know, as a reader, I didn't know that the story, the backstory, but as I was going through the book, beyond the fact that it was first, it felt like there was something emotional in it, if that makes sense. And and I'm coming in just layman reader, and I was like, Yeah, this this it really stuck with me, which is why I made a point of asking about it and kind of in my notes ending there, even though he started there, right? So I guess we did accomplish both first and last word <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a roundabout way. He'll be, he'll be smiling. Somewhere he'll be smiling, Ronald. Yeah. Who That's knew? Cool. You know, I want to get us out on the drop. And the drop is a recommendation. It could be anything at all from all of us to my listeners. I'll go first. My drop is a book. It's published by Haymarket Books, one of my my favorite publishers, and it's called The Speech, and it's by Gary Young. Barrett, Gary Young is a, is a British writer, though he is of Bajan descent like myself, so I feel like we are kindred in that. And what The Speech does is it basically is a look back, but also look forward, of Martin Luther King's um, famous I Have a Dream speech. And I love this book because what it does is take a real scholarly and philosophical view of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, a speech that has been infamously co-opted by right-wing lunatics and radicals to actually do the exact opposite of what Martin Luther King meant in the speech and, and his entire legacy, I feel, Martin Luther King's legacy is one that is in constant is constantly under attack by, again, conservatives and right wings who do not embrace the anti-capitalist, anti-military, quite radical legacy of Martin Luther King and have reduced him to their simplistic and wrong notions of what his I Have a Dream speech is all about. So this book reclaims that from these right wing jackals. So that is my that is my drop. Who's the author? Did you say Gary Young? Gary Young, yeah. I think he's a British author, isn't he? He used to write for The Guardian, Gary Young. I think he's a, yeah, he's a Guardian. I remember, I recognize his name. I think he might have moved to America. Oh, wow. That was a wrong move. But, uh... <laughs> 
well, <laughs> who knows? I mean, <laughs> like, dude, we're we're re we're reshuffling the the deck chairs on the Titanic over here. If you get a chance to not be here, <laughs> I would gladly take it. But yeah, he he is from the UK. But like I was saying, his his ancestry is from Barbados, same as mine. So you know, that's where I find we are kindred spirits. So that's that's my drop. And and brother Gary, if you're listening, get out. If you came to New York or you came to America, get out. Don't do it. <laughs> Go back and fight for the NHS. <laughs> I'm not sure the UK is in any better position. Hey, you're, maybe you're just a ship that is going to sink a little later than this one. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's see. <laughs> let's see. So, Joyce, your, your drop, and then we'll go to you, Paul. Okay. I really admire that you were able to look through the book, Phil, because <laughs> my capacity to actually read anything now in, to completion is quite, uh, quite, difficult, quite rare. But the, the drop that I've chosen is also a book, one that I've uh, managed to listen to through audiobooks, which is, um, and I'm sure you heard of, of it, it's by uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass. And and I, I can't offer a very succinct summary of it, but just that it's really a, a combination of memoir, but also science writing. And she comes from an indigenous American background and she weaves that into her love of nature and the lessons that she's learned by bringing together different types of knowledge because she's trained as a, as a scientist, but also learned how to bring back her heritage and her identity into her professional sphere. So I think for me, it really resonates also because I do have a love of nature, but not just about that, but actually recognizing and bringing in different knowledges and worldviews into the work that I do, which is kind of really important for my work. So that's my drop. That's a great drop. I love that book. It's one can't really see clearly in the background, but it's up there on that on that shelf filled with books. Um, but she writes she writes so beautifully as well. So that's another thing I admire about writers who can really write things that I can feel but I can't express. Yeah, absolutely. The beauty of the written word. There it is. Paul, you're up. What's your drop for us? Yeah, well, like Joyce, uh, you know, I'd, I don't get much time to read anymore. The only things I read are funding proposals and journal articles, and then I have to <laughs> review them. So it kind of feels like work. Um, I've never been a great reader, I have to point out. So I'm kind of struggling here. Oh, they don't have to be books. They could be anything. Yeah, I've got something. I've got something that's just over here, out of shot. But like the naughty schoolboy I am, and the maverick I am, I, I didn't do my homework. So I kind of reached out for the first thing that was on my desk, which is also the most recent thing. Um, and this is an exhibition that we've just done in southern Italy, mm. in Lecce, called Design for the Unthinkable World. It took a long time to come together. I actually started before, before COVID. And so it's taken, yeah, a long, long time to come to fruition. But we worked with six uh, design studios all over the world. And we utilised the 50th anniversary or thereabouts of Victor Papanek's Design for the Real World to now contemplate that what we have created is an unthinkable world. I'm sure that Victor Papanek and many others would be horrified to see that the world we've, we've helped create. So we asked six designers from all over the world, and again, some that kind of emerging voices and more kind of practical responses. We had responses from, well, actually New York City, Chicago, Mexico City, Johannesburg, Sao Paulo, 
Australia and Vienna. And we asked those studios to, to kind of create a number of things. So that they, they created a number of things like film, filmic installations, which kind of, I guess, articulate, critique and raise kind of issues of, you know, how we as a community have, have created this unthinkable world and what we're going to do to address it. And, and the sun doesn't revolve around us anymore, but, you know, we need to kind of create new ways of, I guess, kind of living in this world and hopefully kind of turn it from an unthinkable world into something much more, much more habitable. So if you happen to be in Italy, in the south, a beautiful place called Lecce, then I'd recommend that exhibition. Absolutely. There's always good reason to be in Italy. I, I spent my summer there. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I will definitely try to check that out the next time I'm in country. Joyce, Paul, I want to thank both of you for coming on the deep dive with me and, and sharing your thoughts. Again, the book is The Routledge Companion to Design Research. It's the second edition. I'm sure that will be in the next 10 years. We'll be checking in with each other for likely was the third edition, assuming that we have actually heeded some of this advice and created a world that is still habitable for all of us, which I, I hope we do. Um, I wanna thank both of you for being on a deep dive with me. This was a great conversation and thanks so much. Thanks, Phil. It's lovely to meet you. Take care of yourself. Likewise, thank you. Cheers, bye. Bye. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.